So I wasn't really quite sure how to start this sermon, so I'm just going to throw it out here right away. Do you remember the first time or you realized what temptation and sin were? I do. Um, I was about four years old, and my mom said, hey, we're going to walk downtown, and uh, at the end, we'll get to go visit your friend. So I was a, just had gotten probably in nursery school, and I was so excited to go visit my friend, but we had to do these errands. So we went downtown, did the errands, and on the way back, it was really hot, so my mom bought me a snow cone. And I chose raspberry, not because of the flavor, but because it was blue. My favorite color is blue. I don't know if I thought blue raspberry had a different taste than the raspberries of the, the tree, but either way, it was blue, and I was super excited. So we got to my friend's house, and she said, go ahead, go right in and play. So I was playing in her room. Now, she said to me, I have this new game. I invented this new game. Do you want to play? I said, sure. She said, but don't do it too loudly because my mom doesn't really like it when I play this game. Okay, fine. So she had this penny, and she's like, look what I can do. And she goes and she sticks it into the little handle that is carved out in, in those closet door things. You know, like your closet door has this little metal thing that they've like attached in there so that you can grab and close the, the closet door without getting fingerprints and stuff all over the nice white closet doors. So she said, look, watch. And she pops it in and she says, look, and I can pop it right back out. Great, that sounds like fun. So then she hands me a dime and she says, why don't you try? And so I say, oh, that's great. I pop it in and guess what happens? Dimes are not the same thickness as pennies. And so it's stuck, totally stuck. And she starts to panic and she's like, my mom, my mom. And I said, wait, wait, there's gotta be a solution. We've got to be able to figure this out. I'll try to get it out, right? She says, okay, try to get it out. And so I take my hand and I stick it behind the closet door because it was like a little wobbly, right? And I'm holding it tight. And I take my hand on the front of the door and I take my finger, which was still pretty sticky from the snow cone, right? And I licked it and I was like, Ugh. and it just fell back down. So I tried it again. I gripped it even harder licked it again, and pulled up that dime as hard as I could. But no matter what, it just wouldn't pop out. It was right about that time that my mom walked in with her mom and said, it's time to go. And the first thing my friend starts to do is tattle. She's like, look what she did. She put a dime in my closet door. Well, the first thing I did was vehemently deny it. It wasn't me, right? But... I noticed something very strange. My mom and her mom were looking very closely at the door, and when I looked up to see what they were looking at, I realized I was sunk. There were blue fingerprints all over the door, and so no matter what, I could not deny that I had at least my hands on it, right? And so the second thing I said was, she made me do it. Now, many of you probably saw that coming as soon as I said something about a blue snow cone, but... Uh, I think our scripture verse today has something to say about this. So would you stand with me? We're going to read uh, from James uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And remember, when you are being tested, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from your own desires, which drags us away and entices us. 
These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Father, we come to you this morning, and we know you have something to say to us. We know that you are constantly involved in wanting to speak to us, wanting to speak your word to transform our hearts. So this morning we stand and we open our hands to you and we ask that you minister to our hearts and you work within us so that your word becomes fully alive and able to transform. Holy Spirit, be with us as we go through this word today. Amen. You may be seated. So I must admit, this sermon was a struggle for me, um, not because I didn't understand what temptation and sin were, but because I didn't really want to just make it a really quick, here's three points to resist sin and get out of temptation. Or I didn't want it to be a guilt fest, right? To lay out a whole bunch of things so you'd be, feel really super guilty. I struggled with this because Sometimes when we just give and we just run to the like, here's the three points to help you get out of this, or I just lay on the guilt, you can feel that for a moment, right? You can write this all down and you can say, yeah, yeah, that will be helpful until two hours from now and you've forgotten the whole thing. And really, realistically, if I had to sit here and enumerate every single sin that was in this room, we might be here for a while, so... You guys don't think that's funny because I'm pretty sure you guys sin too. Anyhow, um, I, instead, I really want to focus on the verse um, that we're pointing to, that there is something that James is saying, and he's talking about this one big sin, okay? He's sort of leading us into a place that says there is really only one big sin that leads to death. So you do want to know what that one big sin is? You ready? Well, I think I have to back up because you didn't seem all that ready right now. So let me go back to verse 13. Now, remember, when you are being tested, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never too tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Now, the word for testing and tempting is this word, Greek word, parazo. And it means to prove or to test and to tempt. It's usually translated as trials, tests, or temptation, but it depends on the context of how it's translated. And James actually plays with this word for a reason. Because just in the verse before, verse 12, it says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. James is pointing out here that while those who are tested, parazzo, also may face temptation in that test, parazzo, if you successfully, if you are successful at that test, parazzo, it will lead to the crown of life. So the early church was beginning to have a question right about then because they were saying, wait, if God blesses those who endure testing, but end up sinning because temptation lots of times comes within a test, then can we blame God for this one big sin? No. James says, no, God does not use evil 
is not involved with, he doesn't use, he doesn't invite us to engage with evil in order to do his purposes. God allows tests and trials, but we are not to blame him when we move beyond that test and beyond temptation into this one big sin. Instead, trials and tests come from and are given to us to help us get stronger in our faith, right? So I want you to think about it this way. We all know what it takes to get stronger and to develop a stronger muscle, right? We can reach down and we take up two pound weights and we begin to build the, you know, our muscles. They get stronger because of the resistance. The more you lift, the more resistance you get. So you move to five pounds and then eight pounds and then 15 pounds, right? Depends on how strong you want to get and how big you want your muscles to be, you continue to gain more resistance. Well, in a spiritual sense, with each of our tests, our trials, our temptations even, more weight in some ways is added because it helps us sort of develop the resistance to the temptation and get spiritually stronger and stronger with each test. So if God doesn't use evil to test us, I think we certainly know who does, right? I mean, think about the last time that you were tempted and you did something wrong. Who did you blame? We always say, the devil made me do it, right? The devil made me do it. Well, just like Adam and Eve, the first humans uh, had an interaction with Satan and the snake came to them and said, you know, you can go ahead and eat this fruit of the tree of good and knowledge and you're not gonna die. That, God didn't mean that. And so Adam and Eve believed that lie. And when God came to confront them and say, um, who's at fault here? He said, she made me do it. And she said, the snake made me do it. Just like I said, my friend made me do it. So let's blame the devil, right? James is like, nope, you can't do that either. In verse 14, he says, temptation comes from our own desires, which drags us away and entices us. And now we're getting closer to that one big sin. James paints this really graphic picture that is this acceleration of the temptation to sin, right? First of all, he gives us this first picture of like a lure, right? It lures us away. It's like when we have a shiny lure for a fish. It lures the fish and the sparkling thing draws him away from his school. And then the second picture is like that of bait in a trap. It smells good and an animal goes by and says, wow, there's this bait in the trap. Now, both pictures here are relatively neutral, meaning we understand temptations exist, but they're neither good nor bad. And there's always a shiny object or some great smell that's going to draw us and our attention away. But then James pushes this picture into one of a seductress. In verse 15, he says, these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now, before your mind runs wild with the female version of a seductress, I want you to sort of cancel that out. Get any of that image out of your, your mind. Because I want you to think of a seductress like this. 
You know when it begins to get really cold out and you're under your down comforter or your quilt and it's so warm and snuggly and cozy, even though you have to get up for work or school, you're like, it seduces you into staying just a couple more minutes, right? That's a seductress. Or when you um, make yourself some ice cream and you get the caramel sauce out of the fridge and you're like, that's enough, right? Caramel is like the seductress. Or like a snow cone on a hot day. Or for some of you, it's like smelling pumpkin spice. You'll go out and get everything that's pumpkin spice, right? It's seductive because it's inviting, it's alluring, it, it's familiar. It gives you what you want and it promises to make you feel better. And it seems like a good thing, right? But a seductress moves us beyond that shiny object or that really good smelling bait. It moves our normal desires to eat or for shelter or for protection or for significance even. It moves our normal desires into something unnatural, into the one big sin. Now, this is why this image to me is very challenging. And I'm gonna say this very carefully because The image is of one of conception, incubation, and birth, right? This image is a metaphor, right? And the the metaphor demands the same sort of emotions and dreams and expectations that a real pregnancy would. So when we get pregnant, when we conceive, all of our hopes and dreams, it goes into that child. We we get excited about the possibility of what that child's going to be like. Will he be like his mom? Will he be like his dad? Or or will he be the spitting image, we say? We're so excited about that. And we cherish and love that child almost right away. And then if we lose that child, it's devastating. It's almost like we've lost a piece of ourselves. Now, if you have gotten pregnant and have lost a child, I am deeply sorry. This is a, this is a devastating event for you. It, it ends your dreams, it ends hopes and expectations, and it's not what God ever wanted for you. It's not a test. It's not God's plan for your life, right? It's just the fact that the world is broken. When sin entered the world, everything broke. Our relationship with God, our relationships with others, our relationship with the environment, even the relationship our body has with itself. Sickness, sin, illness, death. These are the results of brokenness. Again, God does not use evil uh, to test you. But spiritually, when our desires are dragged away and tempted and seduced into this one big sin. It's like we've conceived something unnatural. And the reason why this image is so challenging is because just like wanting to hold on to a real pregnancy, we have a tendency to hold on to something that we've unnaturally conceived. We begin to incubate it and grow it and love it. All of our hopes, our dreams, our expectations go into the very thing that we've just created. 
So this metaphorical image is one of corrupted conception. It's a corrupt conception of splitting our image. Remember Adam and Eve, they were created in God's image and they were to reflect God in all they did. They were supposed to be the spitting image of their father, but instead they split and began to live in their own image. They worshiped their own image. And that's the clue to the one big sin that leads to death. So now that we understand the progression of sin from lure and bait to seductress, are you ready to know what this one big sin is? Yes? Well, wait. Um, I think we still have to talk about sin in general. So look at your neighbor. If you have a neighbor there, look at him and say, you're a sinner. Come on, use the pointy fingers. You're a sinner. Now turn around to somebody behind you or in front of you and point, come on, you're a sinner. Go ahead, come on, you're a sinner, sinner, right? If you, have a, if you have a mirror in your purse or if you have a phone, you can open it up to your camera and press, you know, get to the selfie one so you can see yourself. Now I want you to say, you're a sinner too, right? So we get this, right? As church folks, we get what sin is. We understand that we're sinners and, and we've been taught that you know, sin is very much part of our nature and, and it's something that we struggle with. Um, but sometimes when we just divide that word sinner and we define it into just those who are breaking the laws or those who are just breaking the rules, you know, the big 10 commandments, the thou shalt not ones, we've done a disservice to this word sin. Because I'm not sure we really believe that sin is that big of a big deal. I'm not sure that even Christians believe sin is a big deal. Now, while in the Camino, I got to walk with a bunch of different people, but one day I was walking with this woman that I had gotten to know really well, and she identified herself as spiritual, which meant that while she recognized that the world was probably supernatural in some ways, some supernatural things had happened to her, she really didn't think or care that there was a God. It didn't matter to her. Everything was okay. Because what her main goal was just just do good. She believed that if she did good, then good would come back at her. Um, So when I asked her about sin, she's like, there's no sin because there's no heaven, there's no hell. It doesn't make a difference. As long as I'm doing good, good will come back to me. Okay? Then I met this other guy, and um, after a long day's walk, we were on the lawn next to this Roman aqueduct and this big bridge, and there's pilgrims all around eating, and um, he and I began to have a conversation about his own sense of who God was. Now, he identified himself as scientific, right? He said he couldn't believe in a God that he couldn't see, and so he started to tell me his own story. Now, he had lost his house, he had lost a girlfriend, he had lost a business, and the only things he actually had were the stuff that was in his backpack. Now, um, I think he had a sense that there was brokenness in his life, but he didn't know what to do with it. And he said to me, "Um, I, I don't know how to have the faith that you do because I can't see God. I need to see God. So um, in my worst Spanish, because I am really awful, uh, in my worst Spanish, I said, all you have to do is just ask God to show you. And he said, that's it? And I said, yes, 
And so he threw himself on the grass and at the top of his lungs says, okay, God, show me yourself. I actually started to move farther and farther away. I was like, oh, okay, buddy. You know, so it was interesting because night after night, he, when we would sit down and eat together, because you sort of travel with people and you end up eating with each other, he started to tell us about the places that he had God sightings. He said he started, he started to meet people that were like me and my friend, that somehow we were God people. And every time he talked to a God person, he felt peace. He felt something different. Somehow he was beginning to understand what this one big sin was in his life. He understood the brokenness, but he didn't know how to fix it. Now, these are just two microcosms of our world. I think it's around us all the time, but I think it's also in the church all the time. I think we have this uh, propensity to just sort of deny that sin's a big deal or that we still sin, or we know we sin, we are broken, but we don't know how to fix it. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller gives this definition of sin. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from him. So according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. So are you finally ready to hear what this one big sin is? The sin that boils is down to just this one thing. You ready? The one big sin is idolatry. Now I know you're like, wait, wait, that is in the Ten Commandments and that felt like you tricked us because we already know about that. But I think sometimes when we think about idolatry, we're thinking about the stone idols, you know, that we might have seen in Bible stories somewhere or some metal object or something like that. I think we, we, we are a little bit detached from that word idolatry, but... Idolatry is the one big sin because we put our hopes, our dreams, our expectations into something that we've created, that we've decided is important, right? We've split our images. We've split our identities. We've split our allegiances, our love, our devotion, and worship between the God who's created us and the things that we've created, or worked for, or have gotten, or bought, right? So sin goes deeper than just some external uh, action. Because of Adam and Eve, this first sin, this one big sin entered all of humanity. And it has just corrupted everything. Just like Adam and Eve believed that first lie, we believe that sin may or may not affect us. But we all carry the temptation to sin inside. Sin has to do with our inner self, our identity. And when we miss the will of God in that, we are sinning. The Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building your identity on anything but God. So sin is building your identity, your self-worth, your happiness on anything but God. 
James says um, in 1 John, I mean, John says in 1 John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is, is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, if I had argued with my fellow uh, pilgrims and tried to define sin as the doing of wrong things, like I could have sat there and pointed out to them, you know, you've been sleeping with lots of people, you've been sort of like spending your money in the wrong ways, you're looking at pornography, you've cheated on your taxes, like over and over and over again. I could have laid out those reasons, but the problem was the argument would have been about relativism. It would have been about, well, who gets to decide what's right and wrong, what's good and bad? So instead of going that approach, I approached him with this. I said, do you feel that emptiness? Do you know that emptiness, the, the brokenness that comes when you've chased your career, when you've chased your romances, when you've chased all these things and you still feel empty? They both said, yep, we know what that feels like. We said, I said, that's idolatry. That is sin because you put all your hopes and dreams and expectations into something that you've been creating. Instead of looking to God for security and peace and well-being, you were looking to these things and trying to replace God with these things. Now, the one big thing, sin, is not just a violation of the law or rules, it's really a violation of love. It's splitting your image, right? It's loving yourself over God. It's loving your things over God. It's loving what you've created over God. It's loving what you've conceived, your ideas, your, your own wisdom, all of it, loving it over God. So I know I told you I didn't wanna reduce this sermon to just like the three points that will help you uh, resist temptation to sin. But I do believe that there is a place where we need to get to which actually truly transforms us, right? So I'm gonna give you these three points because I want them to transform your idea about how you approach temptation and sin and this one big sin of idolatry. So first, we must see ourselves as God does. Now remember, we talked about Adam and Eve having a splitting identity because they were supposed to be created in the image of God. They were created in the image of God, but they wanted to be created in their own image. Instead, we must believe about ourselves. We must see ourselves as God does. Instead of being splitting images of ourselves, we should actually be the splitting image or the spitting image, right, of Jesus. That's how we should see ourselves. We've been created in God's image, so let's see ourselves that way. N.T. Wright says um, in his, um, he's translated Mark for everyone, and it says this. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he has said to Jesus on the day of his own baptism. He sees us, 
not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. So let that sink in. We must see ourselves as God does. Then we must be honest with ourselves. When we can come to the point that we see ourselves as God does, we can be honest because it carries no shame. It carries nothing. It just says, yep, we mess up. God says, yep, I already knew you messed up. That's okay. Because when he's looking at us, he's looking at us as in Christ Jesus. And he's receiving us as in Christ Jesus. So when we are honest with ourselves, we have to ask questions like, are we exercising our spiritual muscles? Right? Are we going to his word on a regular basis and learning from him? Are we going to prayer with him and learning from his spirit and having his spirit transform us? Are we constantly being in communion with his church, with the people who can help us fight these battles? So just be honest. Instead of focusing on the sin that you're committing or on the temptation that you're facing, focus instead of strengthening these spiritual muscles. And third, in the midst of temptation, we must run to God. Our first thought should be, let's run to God, not let's try to fix it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is why James starts that passage and sort of ends this passage with, when you endure, you will receive the crown of life. 